0: Well, it is uh, good to be with you all again, uh, and we want to thank everyone for their prayers. My son was in Nashville in the hospital for a few days and had some health issues and still trying to figure out what's going on, but a lot of you sent notes and encouraging messages, and, and so we're grateful for that. We got back, um, I think it was late Wednesday night, and um, the next day, uh, something happened to me that I uh, thought, boy, if... Anybody finds out at, the, at church, I mean, I might like lose my job over this. And then I thought more about it and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna share it. I'm just gonna share something that happened. Um, and this is like the latest episode uh, in the Your Pastor Has Clay Feet series, all right? Um, <clears throat> I'm driving down uh, Olive and um, maybe right around rush hour. So, Olive around Creve Corps headed towards 270 gets really busy and packed. And so I'm, I left the house, you know, I'm shooting down, it's just before the sun goes down, and I'm you know, in traffic, and I'm headed towards uh, like Trader Joe's or something. I'm, and in St. Louis, I don't know if you know this or you've observed this, if you've been here a while, but when you enter an intersection which has no lane divisions, when you get to the other side, it is not always clear where your lane continues. I don't know if anyone's experienced that. So I get to the other side of the intersection, and I'm... I'm positive I'm in my lane, but, but I can see that the lanes have shifted a little bit. And some guy in a Hummer is trying to come into my lane and starts honking at me because either he wasn't paying attention or I was in his blind spot because, you know, it's such a big vehicle and I'm in this little Toyota Corolla. And I can feel the hostility. He's honking, screaming, yelling, cursing. And you know, in, in you, there's that fight or flight instinct. And uh, there was not, I didn't even have time to think about which I wanted to choose. As he comes up and I feel the energy, the hatred, the, the, I roll my window down and just turn and say, I was in this lane first, you. And we're, and we're you know, we're driving, and we're screaming at each other. And I have not had an episode like that in, like, I cannot remember how long. I mean, it's been months. No, really, I'm just kidding. It's been, it's probably been 10 years. And it's probably been a decade since I had, I mean, it it was ugly. It was ugly. So I kept driving, and, you know, if you get in an exchange with someone in traffic, you know it happens. After the exchange, you're still right next to each other, you know, from light to light. And it's just like, you know, you know. So he gets behind me. And now he's following me, and I'm, like, thinking in my mind, you know, here I am, right, like, you know, like, I'm a pastor, and I'm thinking, I'm going to have to fight this guy, because he's going to follow me into the parking lot of Trader Joe's, and so, you know, I get in the turning lane, he jumps in behind me, and I turn, and he turns, and now I'm at the next light, and I'm thinking, what do I, what do I do, like, I don't know, you know, he'll swing, I'll lean back, and then I'll hit him with the right hook, like, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't like, I don't, like, I'm just, like, it's been a while since I've been in a fight. What do I do here? And it's, we, you know, it was weird because it, was, it wasn't like I cut the guy off. Because you know how if you cut someone off and they're angry, you do one of these. You're like, oh, sorry, yes, oh, I'm sorry, right? It was, I mean, there was nothing I could do. I, I was completely innocent. But I was the object of this guy's, like, abject hatred. Wick, and, and he was just, he wanted to kill me. I mean, his face was beat red and every, you know, profane word was just like, you know, I mean, so, you know, I, I finally pull into the parking lot and he stops in the middle of the intersection because I can tell he's like, do I want to do this or not? And then finally, as he, you know, drives off, you know, he you know, rolls his window down and gives me the number one sign and, you know, and drives off and I pull into the parking lot and I'm like, I can't believe that just happened. And it's one of those things where I I share that with you to say, like, uh, um, you know, in in my three and a half years of preaching here, I I rarely get negative feedback. Now, maybe that's just because you're polite. But some of the feedback I have gotten is, um, you know, Jordan, you should be a little more vulnerable. And I think preachers can fall into that trap of wanting to present the word of God and themselves as, like, pristine and squeaky clean. Like, here's God's word and here, here am I as a perfect implementer of it and I just want to say like uh, that's not always true (laughs) and I fail and falter and there are times where I think I mean I I drove home and I called Maribel and I told her and I was like more like frustrated that it even happened I was just like and as I reflected back on that situation I thought there was no choice I made I mean literally like something in me just like it was like a switch That I had to like meet this guy's hostility with hostility. There was no, it was like, there was no thinking. It wasn't like, do the right thing here, Jordan, do the right thing. It was none of that. There was none of that. And so sometimes, like, circumstances in life happen that just catch you in the wrong place and you just don't respond the right way. For all your good intentions and, like, your heart that is, like, loves God and wants to do the right thing and be a good person and love your neighbor, sometimes you just don't. Sometimes you just don't, you know, and and I I did go home and pray, you know, the next morning and thought, uh, Lord, like, help me that my heart is oriented in such a way that I would know how to respond better to a situation like that. Because I get people yelling at me all the time, because in L.A., you cut people off and you don't put on the blinker. That's just normal. Here, apparently, you guys put the blinkers on. So I anger people a lot, and I always usually oh, sorry, 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 you know, that kind of thing. But there was nothing I could do. So... um With that word of encouragement, um, the Lord still loves us, and uh, we are works in progress. We are being conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus, and sometimes we falter and fail, and the love of God, which is predicated on the perfect life and obedience of his son Jesus, stands in our stead as our means of acceptance and the grounds of our justification, and praise the Lord for that. We are continuing our series for the life of the world, and this morning we're talking about blessing as a family from Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. So let's get right into it um, and read our uh, scripture text this morning. Genesis 12 and 2, that was, that's great, I really like that. Um, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And flip over to Genesis 17 and verse 1. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face. Excuse me. Back up here. Uh, Verse 1. I was reading verse 15. Uh, And when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. We are on the right track here? Okay, thank you. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham, Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this Lord's Day as we are gathered together in this place to be transformed by the hearing of the word and, Lord, the means of grace in our prayers and in the sacrament. Be with us this morning, Lord, and transform us by the truth of Scripture that we may be conformed to the likeness and image of your Son, that the mind of God may be imprinted on our very hearts, that we may leave this place differently than we came in. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in his book that shares the same title as our series and provides some of the inspiration for this series... Alexander Schmemann says that in the Bible, blessing is not a religious or a cultic act, but the very way of life. Because God has blessed the world and blessed man, the only natural reaction of man to whom God gave this blessed and sanctified world is to bless God in return, to thank him and see the world as God sees it. Man stands in the center of the world and unifies it in his act of blessing. The biblical story of the fall in which man and woman ate the forbidden fruit was that it was not offered to God as a gift to man. Man did not receive of all of the trees in the garden, of all of the plants and all of the things he could eat of, this one tree that he ate of was not given as a gift to him. Not given and blessed by God, and therefore when he ate it, he ate it in isolation. It was food consumed and condemned to be communion with itself alone and not with God. Its primary sin then was that it was enjoyed in an end in and of itself, and not offered back to God in thanksgiving. In other words, of all that Adam was to do, which essentially involved God, his life, his tilling of the ground, his eating of the trees, this one fruit was eaten in isolation and was an act that excluded God because he ate it in secret, or so he thought. And Alexander Schmemann in his book, For the Life of the World, which was written about 40 years ago, Touches on this and he says, Man was to be the priest of thanksgiving, offering the world to God, and in this offering he was to receive the gift of life. But in the fallen world, man does not have the priestly power to do this. His dependence on the world becomes a closed circuit, and his love is deviated from its true direction. He still loves, he's still hungry. He knows he's dependent on that which is beyond him, but his love refers only to the world in and of itself. He doesn't know that breathing can be communion with God. He doesn't realize that to eat can be to receive life from God in more than its physical sense. And he forgets that the world, its air or its food, cannot by themselves bring life, but only as they're received and accepted for God's sake in God and as bearers of the divine gift of life. By themselves, they can produce only the appearance of life. The world is meaningful only when it is the sacrament of God's presence. I fear that we Christians who are aware of God and see ourselves as living life for God unknowingly also fall into this pattern of understanding life's gifts as an end in themselves, right? Life has a lot of good things for us to enjoy, and we, should, we do and we should enjoy those things, but the trap I think a lot of us fall into is enjoying those things in and of themselves and for themselves, for their own sake. Our, our world becomes sort of this closed circuit that leaves God out, Instead of living with the kind of intentionality to our lives where everything that should be enjoyed is enjoyed, received as a gift and offered back to God in thanksgiving. So this is the God to man to earth back to God again circuit, which is the way life was meant to be. And when you look at it that way, you can understand why what Adam and Eve did in the garden was so egregious because this kind of, you know, Tridentine circuit of life, you know, receiving blessing, thanksgiving, giving it back to God, became deformed and God is left out. Well, one way I think to recognize this when we look at the text of Scripture that we just read a few minutes ago is to realize not only what we've been made for, but what our families are made for. And I mentioned families very mindful of the fact that not everybody has, like, a traditional family, right? Some people are single. If you're single, though, you came from a family. Some people are married and childless. And some people, your kids have grown and they're out of the house, and you're wondering, what is, he, what is he about to talk about, right? I don't know that I'm in that zone, that kind of, like, you know, that target zone of what he's going to talk about, the family, the blessing of a family. Well, the whole point is to look at Abraham's life as a model for what it means to be human in the world and what God wants to do in people, specifically his people, and how our lives are meant to reflect God's blessing back out to the world. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. So the first thing I want us to see, number one, is that God redeems the whole world through a family. In Genesis 7:17, 7, God says to Abraham, Uh, 17.7, I will establish my covenant between me and you to be God to you and to your offspring after you. A minute ago, I just talked about Adam and Eve as the first human family. But for ancient Israelites, it was Abraham and Sarah that were far more the model of covenantal blessing and promise. In fact, if you've ever thought about it, you might wonder, it seems weird that like Adam and Eve are on the scene in Genesis and they virtually disappear from all of Scripture, with the exception of a brief mention in Hosea and then Paul's reference in his epistles about Christ as a second Adam. But the biblical storyline throughout the Old Testament, which is much bigger than the New Testament, leaves out Adam completely, and that is not an accident. That is because that, for the people of God, Abraham and his family become the archetypal and prototypical family. Of, that receives God's covenant promises and covenant blessing. And it's to Abraham and Sarah that God wants us to look, right? So Adam and Eve lost something, and God says, look at this. Look at, look at Abraham. Look at Sarah. And so when we do that, you can kind of see, if you, if you haven't read through Genesis... Read through Genesis. It's, it's not a small book, but it is an incredible book filled with some amazing uh, stories and illustrations of God's dealing with humanity. And if you really focus in on the story of Abraham, one of the things you can see is that the entire biblical storyline all the way to the book of Revelation is this unpacking. It's this unpacking of God's promise to bless a particular family, that particular family. God takes an elderly, childless couple living in a foreign land and makes a promise to them. And this promise is the beginning of God's mission to redeem people and make them whole again, because humanity has gotten off the rails because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? And so what God does with Abraham is this effort to correct that, to set the train back on the tracks and head us back in the direction we were originally meant to go. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, wait, what about Noah? Noah, the covenant God made with Noah, was regarding the earth, right? After the flood and the judgment, God says, I will not destroy the world again this way. But it was not in Noah's family specifically that the covenantal promise was made, but Abraham, even though Abraham was a descendant of Noah, according to Scripture. And so God takes this childless couple living in a foreign land, And makes this promise to them. And this promise is the answer to the curse in the Garden of Eden. And it all starts with a family. And here was God's promise. Listen. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's remarkable that Abraham's offspring has not even been born when God makes a statement, and therefore has not made any decisions one way or another, whether they follow or believe. But God is proclaiming right out of the gate his faithfulness to Abraham's descendants because of a covenant that is being made. And just think about that for a moment. And think about your own children if you have children. Think about you. And this is the paradigm of God's dealings with humanity, and this is the key, God saves through the family. And it's not hard when you read throughout the Bible that God saves this way, that the family is a means of God's grace in which he saves people. Uh, There is probably hardly anyone here who can't say that they were exposed to the faith through their family upbringing. In other words, I've gotten to know most of you, and this is not just true for our church, this is true for about 90% of people who proclaim faith in Christ, they grew up in some type of Christian home. Maybe the theology was spotty, and maybe you didn't fully embrace the faith until you were older, but it's no fluke. It is no fluke. God saves families, and God saves through the family. My own personal dealing with people is, they say, oh, I was an unbeliever, and you know, I came to faith at 30 I go, oh, yeah, tell me more about your background. Well, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and I was baptized as in an infant, and then I kind of, like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 time out. You don't see, like, a connection there? Like, you know, oh, no, no, but, you know, we, we our family stopped going to church when I was four, and I just, I just, I didn't believe, and, like, 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 all that may be true, but, like, God is faithful, right, to, like, your baptism as an infant. Like, God is faithful to the fact that many of us were born into believing households, now, if your theology has improved over the years, you may say, well, I don't know if they really got the gospel. I mean, that's almost beside the point because God ultimately is the one who is faithful to his covenant, just in the same way he was faithful to Abraham. And it's all because of this promise made in Genesis seventeen seven: I will establish my covenant between you to be your God and to your offspring after you. And in this promise, we clearly see, secondly, that God redeems the world through love and faithfulness. Genesis 12, 2. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. So this is that receiving of life and all of its goodness and even the world as a gift, right? God is the initiator of blessing because of his love and faithfulness. God is the one seeking out people and families and says, I'm going to bless you. I'll make my covenant with you. I will be faithful to you. I will love you and pour out my grace on you. This is this model that we see. And and when you think about the story, I mean, one of the things I've mentioned many times in the past is our familiarity with the text of Scripture actually makes us unfamiliar because there are certain things that we've read over and heard maybe our whole lives that we probably don't pause long enough to think about. But if you think about it, if you really stop to think about it, think about this, this fact that God chose a wandering Bedouin in the Middle Eastern desert. I mean, it's, he seems so obscure and unimportant, right? Like, like this is actually part of the creed the Israelites would say that my father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, Abraham was like a wandering Bedouin in the desert. And to this day in the Arabian desert, you know, outside of Mecca, and Medina, and Jeddah, there are still Bedouins. You know, in their sweaty, dirty clothes, sleeping out in the middle of the sands with their family and caravan of camels and things like that. And like God chose one of those people in the ancient world about four thousand years ago to make a covenant with. I mean, there were certainly kings and powerful people, and God chooses essentially a nobody, an obscure nobody with no connections, no power, ostensibly no wealth, nothing, and just says, you, yeah, you, I'm going to make a covenant with you. This nobody in the Middle East 4,000 years ago. God chooses this, this nobody, Abraham, without a family, so that what his family would become, think about it, God chooses a man without anything so that what he is one day to become and one day have points back to God. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, you, when, when you join the army, they, like, tear you down because they want to, like, rebuild you, like, in the image of, like, the army or something like that? I don't know if, they act, if that's actually a motto, but it seems, it sounds plausible, right? I mean... And it makes sense. Well, that's kind of what, like, God does with Abraham. Like, Abraham's just kind of like a nobody. He's, like, working in his father's idol shop, and God says, hey, you, get in here. Get over here, right? And he initiates this relationship. And what Abraham is to become, his family, his descendants, in God's mind, are going to point the world back to God. The world is going to see God's blessing on Abraham, And everything he becomes and his descendants as they grow, and the whole purpose is to point back to God as the one who blesses. He takes a humble man, a nobody, and makes a great nation out of him. The gospel is an extension of that blessing. Look at 1 John 1 and 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, God is seeking to give the world life and to bless the world. perhaps we have, and we're in our tradition as a reformed tradition, like we have a really powerful doctrine of sin and the wrath of God, and, and that's good because people just don't talk about that kind of stuff anymore, but it is possible that we have like overemphasized like the wrath of God against sin to the neglect of the fact that that God is actually angry at sin because it's a deviation of his original plan to bless the world, to cause the world to flourish and prosper. And so what he does with Abraham and then later on with sending Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham, is to bless the world because God wants to see the world flourish and have life, not death. God is, right, like, you know, for those of you who do have children, you've raised your kids and you teach them right and good things because as an adult, you just know more than they do. And so when they do things that are not what you want them to do, it's frustrating, right? If that's a microcosm of the wrath of God, right, you're upset because you know that there are other things they could be doing, things you've probably told them to do, that is for their benefit, like don't run in the street and don't don't drink Coca-Cola at midnight and, you know, I mean, things like that. Like, you know what's best for them because they're too young to know. And so when they do the wrong thing, there's a frustration there, right? That's kind of a microcosm of the wrath of God against sin. God is upset over sin because it's like, no, 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 no. This is not what I want for you. I know what's best for you, and I want, you to, I want to bless you. I want to flourish you. And God wants to bless the world, and so he sends his only son so that the world might have life, 1 John 4, 9. Well, Abraham's family is a model for us in more ways than just that. Just like God redeemed Abraham's family for a purpose, he redeems our families for a purpose. And number three, God redeems us to be a blessing to the world. So God grabs a hold of Abraham and blesses him. And the purpose is that in the life of Abraham and his descendants, the world is going to be blessed. Well, God blesses us, Genesis 12 too, so that we will be a blessing. The family is to be a gift for the life of the world. And I mention the family because if you don't have a family, it doesn't mean you can't be. It just means that when we look back at kind of the, the story arc of Scripture, the very beginning, the very first thing God does in his kind of covenantal dealings is to start with a family. And it's this model for us, even for those of us who are not part of a family in any traditional sense, right? And nowadays, families come in all shapes and sizes, right? You have people who are divorced and remarried. You have, like adopted kids from previous marriages. You have individual people who are not married. Like you have all of these different like variations of what the family is. So I'm, I'm certainly not trying to present some like imperialistic idea that the family is this and nothing else. Um, and at the same time, there are violations of the biblical ethic of what a family looks like, but that's not my point. My point is simply to say that as we look to Abraham's family who receives God's blessing, God says, I am blessing you to be a blessing, I am giving you everything you have so that you can kind of give it back to the world. And in this way, the world will see my love. This is really pressing against this whole closed circuit mentality where life and everything we have is simply enjoyed for itself without any intentionality of receiving it and enjoying it as a, in thanksgiving and giving it back to God as a gift. And there's a lot of different ways that happens. But one of the problems the American family has is that its welfare is seen as an end in and of itself, right? We make sure our kids are smart and get good educations and become good athletes and good students. Like we're perfecting them to this level of like competition. And it's just kind of something we do. It's not even like some active rebellion against God or anything. It's just, oh, that's what you do. You know, my kid has to be smarter than the other kid. My kid has to be a better athlete than the other kid. My kid has to go to a better school than the other kid. Like, right? It's this like, it's this idea that that in and of itself, for its own sake, serves its own purpose. And in reality, guys, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where do I fit into all of this? We're like, we don't know. (laughs) But like, this is what you do. You just you live, you work hard, and you just make the family and its structure. Everything it could be should be for its own sake. We buy houses, we mow lawns, we pay our bills, we do home improvements. We become so busy erecting the family like a tower that's impenetrable, like Babel. It's interesting that right before the Abraham story shows up in Genesis is in chapter twelve is chapter eleven. That is not a coincidence that in chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, and a whole group of people who are building a tower in rebellion against God to make a great name for themselves. Without God. Like, those things are meant to be compared. Genesis 1 through 11, it stops at 11, boom, Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, rebellion against God. They want to make a name, a great name for themselves for its own sake. Without reference to God, without any reference to God and his plans for the world. And God says, no, 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 no. that's not going to work. He confounds the languages. He throws, you know, he throws a monkey wrench in that whole program. And the very next chapter, God chooses someone else and says, I will make your name great because as your name is made great, it will not be in isolation from my love and my plan for the world. And successfully, Abraham is the answer to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Successfully, Abraham and his family, God builds them up essentially like a tower to show the powers of darkness, no, 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 this is how it's done. You don't become great on your own for your own sake. It's all done for my glory because I'm gonna give it all to you. You need to include me. I want you to include me in this loop of living and blessing and prospering and flourishing. And as you receive it, as you live and bl- are, b- are blessed and prosper and flourish, every step of the way, you're gonna offer it back to me in thanksgiving and you're gonna be a blessing to everyone around you. That was, that was what Nimrod and the Tower of Babel didn't have. And God cuts it short and starts over with Abraham. Right? Right? And so when our families become this kind of closed circuit, like Alexander Schmemann is talking about, we fail to recognize the purpose the, from the very beginning for why we were made. And I know this touches us here in this part of like, the world because like, we don't have much bandwidth for anything. Like, our lives are go, 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 especially if we've got children, and I'm not condemning it. You, because you have children right now. But, like, that's just the culture we're in. It's, it's just one thing after another. It's Boom, 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 boom. And that's okay. It's okay to be busy. It's okay to, you know, have your kids, like, you know, violin practice on Monday and, like, soccer on Tuesday and, like, basketball. on Wednesday. Like, that's okay as long as not only we're we making room for God, but God is included in this whole, like, matrix of busy living. And we recognize that, like, the achievement of the home does not exist for its own sake. It exists to be a blessing and to be offered back to God as a gift. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Christians usually respond to the world and the culture with fortification or domination or accommodation. Do you remember that? If you weren't here, Christians typically respond to the world, which does not always care about the things of God. And if you're, if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, you, that resonates with you, that Christians, sometimes we can do the fortification thing. It's the bunker mentality, us against them. You know, let's erect a, a bunker to keep the world away from us, the nasty old world. Or there's domination. We're going to engage the culture. We're going to defeat and destroy the culture, right? Like, you know, we're going we're to go to war culturally. And we're gonna, I mean, just, just, just as a sidebar note, let's see how we're doing on time. Just as a sidebar note, like we lost the culture war a long time ago. So so that tactic didn't work. And then the third reaction of Christians is accommodation. Oh, well, let's just, can't beat them, join them. And then Christians just essentially jump on board with every worldly, ungodly cause there is because we just want people to like us, right? And all three of those responses fail to take into account this message coming from the book of Genesis from God to Abraham, which is all three of those are wrong. I want you to faithfully live for me while being a blessing to the people around you even though they may be unbelieving and hostile to your faith. It's okay. Bless them. Serve them. Love them. Encourage them. Because in a post-Christian culture, the only thing that really resonates with skeptics and and people who are hostile to the church and its failings or whatever is this posture of grace. It's this posture of like generosity. You know, there there are voices on the left that say unless you accept everything about a person's life, you're not loving. And there are voices on the right that say that if you are loving or affirming to someone whose lifestyle in any way is out of step with God and his word, you're compromising. Right? So like it's like this, this dance, right? We've got these people saying one thing and these people saying another thing. And like I just want to look at scripture again. First John 4:11. Beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, then this is just talking about Christians and Christians. Because we know from the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus clearly is trying to overthrow this idea that only another believer or someone of the household of faith is your neighbor. Because Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan when someone says, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, they're like, well, who's my neighbor? He's like, look. And he gives the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan Right? against the priest and the Levite the, you know, who see a man bleeding and wounded and says, well, he's not of my tribe. He's not of the household of Israel. Like This is some stranger bleeding. I'm not gonna... And the Samaritan doesn't care about that. Right? Samaritan's already kind of on the outs and he cares this person. He picks him up, throws him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, tells the innkeeper, take care of him, heal him up, and whatever the cost is, just put it on my tab. Like Jesus is saying, this is what loving means. It's not this, like, reduced, reductionistic group. Oh, I'm very loving with these people. Um, There's this great podcast that I encourage you to listen to. It's called This American Life. And it's put out by NPR. It's, it's, uh, I've been listening. I love podcasts. And I listen to lots of different podcasts. And this, is, this one is, like, magnificent. It's brilliant. And the host um, is a guy named Ira Glass. And the show is so good because... Everyone whose story is told is presented by the interviewer and host, Ira Glass, sympathetically. Like, see, he finds some way to kind of, like, get into the skin of the people that he's interviewing. So they'll tell their story, and he'll pick a sidebar and make a narrative. And he'll say, you know, so-and-so, you know, went to the, you know, to the unemployment office, and instead of them giving her a check, blah, 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 and like he tells it in a sympathetic way. And Ira Glass was interviewed recently. I was watching an interview with him um, about his interviews with people. And he was asked about viewing people sympathetically and, like, why he does it. And somehow in the conversation, Christians came up. And the interviewer said he was an atheist and asked Ira Glass if he was a believer. Ira Glass said, no, I'm, you know, Pretty liberal, pretty atheist person. He's Jewish by descent, but he's a pretty liberal atheist guy. And um, and I, I kind of expected um, Glass, Ira Glass to kind of like rail against Christians, which is kind of like something, you know, maybe you would expect like a, like a liberal atheist to do. But instead, he was magnanimous, and he said that he thought Christians were treated unfairly and targeted by the media, and his interviewer, who was also an atheist, was kind of surprised by this. And, he, and Ira Glass went on to say, look, I really believe that um, you just have to, um, you have to be sympathetic towards other people. You, you have to be generous towards them. You have to give people the benefit of the doubt. And his posture towards others was one that caused him to just give the benefit of the doubt to other people. And as I listened to that interview, which was not part of the podcast, but was a different program, like I was, like I was educated in that moment. That like, like the heart of love, like this guy may not be a believer, but there's something like this narrow slice, where he's like winning at what like what life is supposed to be in the in the sight of God. He's just generous towards people, and he views them sympathetically, and instead of assuming the worst about everybody. Like, he views them sympathetically, and he's, he has a magnanimous spirit. And it was this lesson in generosity, and I thought, am I generous with my judgments towards others? Like, should I, do I give others the benefit of the doubt? It really may cause me to examine my own heart. Because as a Christian, like, I kind of, we kind of boast about being, like, loving and gracious towards people. And, you know, it's hard to do in this wicked and cold world that we live in, this, you know, kind of post Christian world uh, my road rage incident this past week is proof of that it's not always easy right it's not always easy to be generous towards other people and to give them the benefit of the doubt like maybe next time I'll say he's just having a rough day I I don't know right like but it's it's not it's not always an easy thing to do but here's the point God's love moves him towards generosity and magnanimity God is a generous soul, and it should make us as well generous souls. We should be generous with our judgments and opinions, and we should give others the benefit of the doubt. And here's why. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here's verse 17, which many people probably don't read. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. God doesn't have to, Jesus didn't have to come condemning the world. The world already stood condemned. We know that from the fall. But in order that the world might be saved through him, God loved the world. This model of love and generosity, this model of blessing that Abraham and all of the family of God ought to exhibit towards the world, that the world might see this blessing of the covenant Right, that this covenant God is a God of blessing and love and encouraging and be attracted to that and that they might be invited into that. And maybe we can see ourselves and the families we belong to as serving that purpose also because that is what God wants. God wants us, like Abraham, to receive our blessing, to be a blessing. In, in closing, you know, In a post-Christian culture like ours, the gospel of Christ doesn't get much airplay unless, like Shmiman said, we treat life as a gift to be received and then offered back to God in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for this sure word of truth from Genesis as we look at the life of Abraham and his family, and the reason for the blessing he received from you, which was to be a blessing, that in the flourishing and prospering of his generations and his children, that covenant would continue and that the world would see your covenant faithfulness. Even though his descendants were not always obedient and faithful, the covenant remained. You were faithful, and you are faithful, and help us, O oh God, to be reminded of your faithfulness in our lives and also reflect that confidence as a blessing back out into the world, a world that is anxious. Our culture is anxious. We live in an anxious culture. We are worried about things. We take medication to calm our hearts and fears because we are so troubled. And Father, help us to look to you as not an answer, an option, but the only answer. And Father, we look to you and know that you sent your Son for our salvation Help that truth to live in us every day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.